This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, November 27, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Verse 1 says this, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Maanam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell you, my lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, well, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mother's with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so he stayed there that night from what he had with him. He took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female donkeys, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking cows and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. It's a big gift under the tree. These he handed over to his servants, Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me. Put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? Whose are these ahead of you? He shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And he shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I'll see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And the same night he arose and took his two wives and the two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And then the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I am not going to let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen 
God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word. And a bit crazy one at that. We have been studying the story of Jacob, which will soon turn into the story of Joseph and will be done with Genesis. But Jacob is... Running, He has run, it seems, from one enemy into the arms of another. And 20 years ago, so 20 years removed from this moment, Jacob had stolen his brother Esau's inheritance. He had deceived his dad, Isaac, to obtain the blessing that was supposed to be for his firstborn. And Esau hated Jacob because of that. And he planned to kill Jacob after his father died. And 20 years ago, his mother heard this, probably saw the anger, but heard his plan and this threat. And so to save her favorite son, Jacob, she sent him back east where he would find a wife from her family and where he worked for Laban. She had told Jacob that when Esau settles down, when his anger subsides, I will send a message for you and I'll bring you back home. But after 20 years, that message never, ever came. The Lord sent him back and no longer a lying little mama's boy with only a staff to his name. He is returning as a man, a husband twice, a father of many children and a very wealthy property owner. But Jacob finds himself in a very difficult spot. He is in the proverbial, kind of between a rock and a hard place. To the east is an evil uncle. To the west is a very angry Esau. And so after resolving his conflict with Laban, which you heard about last week, Jacob starts to travel and continue home. And you can imagine it took just moments for him to go, Esau. What about Esau? Yeah, that guy totally deceived, the guy I robbed, the guy that wanted to kill me. His memory of Esau begins to fill him with fear, and rightfully so. Esau was a man's man, tough dude, killed stuff with his bare hands. Jacob is scared. So he starts traveling. He comes to his camp, and to assuage his fear, God sends what I believe is an army of angels to meet him. It's very subtle, like God sent angels to meet him. But as he arrives, he's like, like, this is God's camp. There's enough angels here to fill a camp, so he names the place two camps, God's camp and his camp. You would think that an army of angels would be enough to encourage Jacob to trust that God was going to protect him from Esau or anyone else that might encounter, but it wasn't. He was still scared with an army of angels. Scared. So he starts to make preparations himself to meet Esau, who lives in the southern part of Canaan and is traveling very quickly north to meet him. And so, preemptively, Jacob sends some messengers to tell Esau, hey, I'm back. And so they go, hey, I'm back. I've got all kinds of wealth and stuff. Don't worry. I don't need yours. 
And his messengers return with bad news. And they say, Esau's coming. And he's not just coming by himself with a couple camels. He's coming with 400 men. That's an army. And Jacob is scared even more. Now, the blessing that Jacob had received, or I should say deceived Esau and his father to get, had certain promises connected to it. And this is perhaps why Esau is so motivated to come. One of the promises was, you are going to rule over Esau. And the second was, you are going to rule over all of the land that Esau is now living in as well. So Esau has been spending 20 years, which is a long time, building his own family, building his own kingdom, building his own wealth. He's coming with 400 dudes. He's there to protect his own. And Jacob is fearful. Presumably, Esau is still angry. And again, despite the angel army, Jacob begins to prepare to fight. And ironically, as he's preparing for a fight with Esau, God is in the background preparing to fight Jacob. And that's really what this passage is about. The context is his fight with Esau, but what is actually going to happen is God is going to fight with Jacob. And Jacob's experience with wrestling God, essentially, is pretty unusual, but I also think it's, it's also common. Few of us are actually going to wrestle with God, if any of us wrestle with Jesus in this very tangible, real sense. But I believe God is going to fight everyone whom he saves. That everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, who believes in Jesus, and becomes a follower of Jesus, will go through a fight with Jesus. And the wrestling match, if you will, with God, the wrestling with Jesus is often inspired by and within difficult and often painful circumstances that bring it about. But that pain and that circumstance, whatever it looks like, I believe is God's chosen mean to not only change you, but to bless you and to make you dependent upon him for every other fight that you're actually going to encounter in this life. It's the most important fight, but perhaps the most painful one, because it changes you most deeply. So Jacob starts to make really practical preparations for a battle, for an attack. He divides his camp, his people, into two groups. One group he's going to send away with his wives and his kids and all the female servants. He's going to send them away across the ford, across the stream, way away so no one can get to them. And the other he will take a gift from, very shrewdly. He's very strategic. He's thinking about how can I appease Esau? How can I make him less angry? What can I do? And so instead of waiting for Esau to arrive and to ambush and to talk to him then, he prepares this gift and he sends his servants ahead and he sends a gift of over 500 livestock. I don't know if we can imagine that level of wealth. It's hard for us because we're like, we talk about numbers and dollars. We don't talk about cows and camels. But he's incredibly wealthy. And he's going to give a gift of 500 livestock, which is going to arrive in three different waves. So you think about this plan. 
He's going to send a group of animals. And between that group and the next group are servants. And as the servants arrive with each new wave of animals, they'll come. So Esau's marching up with his 400 guys, right? Let's go kill Jacob, right? And then whatever the animal noise is making, he's like, what is this? Right? And he's like, he's going to see these servants. He's like, what's going on? Where are you guys going? There's no fields out here. What are you, who are you? Where are you going? What's your plan? And he tells his servants, here's what I want you to do every time you see them. He say, these belong to your servant, Jacob. He chooses words very carefully. He's not, hey, this is your, old, your brother, right? No, it's not your brother, Jacob. It's not a guy named Jacob. It's your servant, Jacob. These are the property of your servant, Jacob, but they're a gift for you, Esau, and Jacob's coming. Cool, 150 animals. All right, put them in the, put them in the barns. All right, they keep walking. More animals. What the? Right, 150 animals or so. Servants arrive. Where are you guys going? Whose livestock are these? Oh, they belong to your servant, Jacob. And they're a present for you, and Jacob's coming. Oh, okay. Another group, 150 animals. Right, all these animals, right? And another servants. Who do they, what is going, they belong to your servant, Jacob, and they're a present for you, and he's coming. 500 livestock. You realize just how wealthy Jacob is. He can give up 500 livestock as a gift. And he's presenting Esau enough livestock to build his own herding operation, really. And he is hopeful that, that the jester is going to appease Esau's anger. So he sends them off, and then he also prepares spiritually. He prays. He cries out to God. And Jesus says that what proceeds from the mouth reveals the heart. And we, we often talk about that when we say bad stuff. Oh, I see your heart, right? But I'm convinced that how we view God and how we view ourselves and how we view our circumstances is uniquely revealed in the content of our prayers. If we listen to what we pray, we really hear what we believe. And you hear in Jacob's prayer a pretty good indication of where he's at. The first thing he does is he honors God. He acknowledges who God is. You are the God of Abraham. You are the God of Isaac. You are my God. You are the God of covenant. You are the God who came near. You're the God who spoke to me. You are God. And the second thing he says is, I am unworthy. I am unworthy. He confesses, I am unworthy to have been loved by you for so long and for so well. I've done nothing to earn it. I don't deserve it. In fact, I've done the very opposite. But you have blessed me. I am nobody, and you are everything. And the third thing he prays is just deep gratitude. Because I was nothing. I didn't deserve this. And when I walked across this Jordan, all I had was a staff. And now I have two camps full. By pure grace, can we imagine how our prayer life would be transformed if we just started with those three things? Acknowledging who God is, 
that you are God, you are creator of all things, you are the God who came down, you are the God who pursued, you are the God who loved, you are the God who is faithful, and I am a piece of work, aren't I? I am nothing. I have done nothing to deserve this. You have just blessed me. And let me count the graces I have. If you began your prayer by acknowledging God, acknowledging your own, basically deserving of His grace, and then measured the graces, what you prayed for next would completely change. And finally, as he's going through his prayer, he asks for something. He asks that God would deliver him. He expresses his genuine fear. I'm scared, Lord. I'm scared of Esau. I'm scared he's going to kill my wives, the mothers of my children. Please deliver me. Please deliver me. Please stop this attack that I know is coming. But the final thing he prays, I think, is probably the most important thing. It reveals the basis for his request. The fifth and final part is he prays a promise. He asks that God would only do what he's already promised. He reminds God of what he's already said. He says, God, remember what you told me. You told me that I would have many children. You told me that my offspring would be, I couldn't even count them, but if Esau comes and attacks, how is that going to be fulfilled? Would you fulfill your word to me? Would you just do as you say you're going to do? I'm not asking to do more. I'm not asking for, for anything beyond what you yourself have already stated you promised to give. It is a, it's a prayer that it, essentially he's just saying, save me, God. Just save me. Because you can save. I don't deserve to be saved. I haven't earned salvation. Just save me. And I tell you, that prayer is both desperate and dangerous. It's desperate in the sense that it comes out from some very genuine fear. He is genuinely fearful of circumstances. And he should be. It's really hard not to be fearful when you don't have a clear conscience. He screwed up royally. And he's remembering everything he has done to create these circumstances. It is his fault. It is his decisions. He knows and he sees his sin. He sees his contribution to it. Strangely, he doesn't pray about that. He just says, get me out of the situation. And that's why I say his prayer is also quite dangerous. Because God isn't interested in changing our circumstances as much as he is in changing our heart. And so when you pray, deliver me, really? Do you really want to be saved? And we have an idea of what that means. Deliver me from this really bad fight that's coming, this really difficult relationship I have. Deliver me. Save me. You really want me to save you? Because that might actually mean not changing your circumstances at all but entering into them with you. See, a change in circumstances, as much as we desire that so often, give me, take this away or bring this, whether it be more money or different job or change in the relationship, whatever it is, don't let me struggle with this anymore. Get me out of it. We don't realize that just because your circumstances change doesn't mean your heart will change. It'll only just take a new set of circumstances and a new fight that will reveal the same problem. But when God comes in and changes your heart, 
the circumstances become secondary. And you begin to view and endure and live through those circumstances completely different. See, Jacob believes that his greatest need is to be saved from this fight he sees coming, this hardship that he sees approaching. In reality, he needs to be saved from his self, from his self-rule and from his self-sufficiency. The interesting thing, and I was thinking about this and didn't say it first service, and it applies to myself, and that's maybe why I thought of it. Jacob's been obedient up to this point. But I wonder sometimes how much his obedience is just based on himself still. Based on his ability to get through to the glory of God. God wants to change that. But before Jacob can experience blessing, he has to experience brokenness. And Jacob hasn't been broken yet. So after making all the preparations to send his family away, Jacob is left alone at the camp. And doggone it, when men are alone, that's when God seems to show up most. God answers his prayer, but not in the way Jacob expects. And in one of the most mysterious parts of Genesis, if not the whole Bible, it says this identify, unidentified man comes and wrestles Jacob. Can you see this picture? Because it is as weird as you think, right? You're sitting there, he's at the fire poking it. Mm, Esau's going to kill me tomorrow. I hope that works. What's going on? Then he suddenly's wrestling. Just some guy grabs him. He's alone. No one's in the camp. What is he thinking at that moment? Like, that's weird. That's creepy. There's no way for me to explain it. Like, oh, that makes sense. No, it's just, it's weird. A guy shows up and starts pounding on him. And he fights. And they wrestle all night long. And at one point in the match, they're struggling, whatever, and the guy's like, boom, like just touches his legs, like, boom, he just pops out, his hip pops out. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm imagining that probably hurt quite a bit, right? I mean, he's just like, boom, uh, but Jacob doesn't like, okay, I give up. He keeps going. He is in pain. And he is still wrestling. He refuses to tap out, right? I ain't tapping out. The identity of the man is never revealed explicitly, but Jacob later calls the place Peniel, meaning face of God, because he says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. What you have here essentially is Jacob wrestling with God and more than likely, scholars will argue that Jacob is wrestling with the Son of God. He's wrestling with Jesus. In the Old Testament, often described as the angel of the Lord and treated with the kind of divinity that only can be ascribed to God. Now, there are a thousand different ways. I mean, literally a thousand different ways that God could have engaged and related to Jacob. This is where my mind goes, right? I think, okay, you got you got the burning bush, you got like God talking through donkeys, you got like, you know, angels just coming and talking to you and weird men, like you have all, but he wrestles him. Why wrestling? And of all things he could have done, God, it's not like he's like, well, I don't know, how about wrestling this time, right? It wasn't like that. He's like, he chose to wrestle. And so we have to take the wrestling and go, what are we, what kind of a God wrestles you? What kind of a God jumps in and starts to pound on you. We learn a lot 
about wrestling. I thought a lot about wrestling this week. So let me just maybe expand our mind a little bit. Wrestling is very intimate. And by that I mean, uh, for many reasons, I didn't wrestle. I didn't wrestle in high school. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't really wrestle. I had friends that wrestled, but I was never into wrestling. I'm a huge fan of, like, WWF 80s wrestling. Love it. It's amazing. That's not really wrestling. So if that's what you're thinking of wrestling, that's not what we're talking about, okay? But it's amazing. You should watch it, okay? But wrestling is not the same as boxing. Wrestling is not the same as even like kickboxing or even MMA. It's, it's different. Other than, and if you know this, right, think of the Olympics, other than the double luge. Think about that for a second. Yeah, creepy. Other than the double luge, wrestling is as close and personal and intimate as two people can get in a sport. And as such, you think about that, we, we worship a God who is not distant, who is not removed, a God who, who chooses to get sweaty and dirty and intimate with us. He pursues us and he fights us, but it's not striking us and watching us fall. It's not kicking us at a distance. He comes in and he grabs us and he holds us and he squeezes us, and he stretches us, and he presses us in a way that's intimate. God wrestles us. But more than that, wrestling is very comprehensive. And what I mean, it's, it's all-encompassing. And it's likely that unless you really understand wrestling, if you, if you went to a wrestling match at like a high school, um, you'd probably be confused. You might be cheering for your child, but you'd be confused like, beep, 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 what? why are they getting points? What, what, what's going on? It's not merely a sport of strength. As two people go together to wrestle, it's not like you go, well, that guy's ripped, so he's clearly going to win. That's not how it happens. It's not just who's stronger. It, there is skill involved and strategy involved and technique involved. It's, it's an all-encompassing sport that requires physical investment and emotional and intellectual investment. It's a lot like chess, right? That's as close to wrestling as I got, right? Chess, nerd, there you go, right? But chess is a game of, of moves. It's a game of, of moves and counter moves. And with chess, you're always thinking, at least the good chess players, I've heard, are always thinking multiple moves ahead. If they do this, I'm going to do this. And if they do this, this, I'm going to do this. That's like wrestling. Wrestling is always thinking a couple moves ahead. And what we see is that as God wrestles us and he, and he transforms our hearts, he often does so through struggles that engage the mind and engage the emotion and engage the... It's all-encompassing. It's comprehensive. But wrestling is also quite painful. It hurts. You see... Jacob and Jesus wrestle all night. And this is not some, you know, 30-second Tyson fight or 30-second MMA fight that, you know, is just over quickly. Wrestling with a person, like a, a traditional wrestling match, requires 
endurance. Now, how much more endurance does it require to wrestle with the Almighty? I must admit, Jacob must have been a pretty good wrestler, right? But he wrestles a long time. And the thing about long-suffering and really wrestling with God or wrestling with, with anything is foreign to us in our culture. See, as we, as we struggle with God, we need to understand that the answers and, and the conclusions are not always immediate. They take a while. Our culture struggles with delayed gratification and really with enduring through painful things. All too often, we will disengage from the fight or simply tap out too early because we imagine it's going to be painful, not even because it is painful. Pain has become this enemy when in fact I think it's one of God's greatest tools to draw us near him. But we're unwilling to, to do the hard work to spend the long time wrestling. We want to come to immediate answers, quick conclusions, get it done, move on, change my circumstances, I want to move. He's like, no. It's so noteworthy that they wrestled all night. It wasn't just they wrestled for five minutes and then the Lord tapped his thing, we're done. Why all night? Because I think it describes how God oftentimes squeezes us for a long time in pain that ultimately leads to change, which ultimately leads to blessing. But all in all, wrestling, yes, it's intimate and it's comprehensive and it's painful, but ultimately what you're talking about is a power struggle. Wrestling, um, it's, not, it's not like, although we certainly have point systems, old, ancient wrestling, right? It wasn't like, hey, you got these points and you got these points. It was someone won and someone lost. And to win meant to force your opponent to submit, to cry uncle, to give up. And crying uncle is not merely admitting your own defeat. It is actually acknowledging the victory of someone else. That you are greater. You see, God is not afraid of his children picking fights with him, though I would say it's very ill-advised. But I believe he intentionally picks at least one fight, if not many, with us and anyone he saves. See, God picks a fight with Jacob not merely to flex his cosmic muscles. He comes in order to break him so that he can bless him. There are no participation trophies in wrestling with God. He is there to win. And he always wins because God never, ever, 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 ever taps out. He never taps out. And the result of any and every fight we have with God is going to be one of two things. Your humiliation or your humility. And Jacob is humbled. As the sun begins to rise, the man asks Jacob, hey, let me go. Let go. Fight's over. And Jacob's like, no way. He's holding on to him. I am not letting you go. Remember, crippled Jacob. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And, and in that, what you hear is something that 
I don't think we, we dare not say that the pain of this fight will be worth it if I can be blessed. If I know you're going to bless me, the pain will be worth it. The struggle will be worth it. The, the time, how long it's gone, will be worth it if I can be blessed. I'm not coming out of this pain without blessing. And the blessing comes in a form of a name change. Now, name changes in the Bible aren't like, like me. I've always thought Scott was the coolest name. So I'm like, I'm going to name myself Scott. Why? Because it's just cool, right? If you're named Scott, you're blessed. Like, I always wanted to be named Scott. We change our names, like, because we just want to change our names. But when the Lord changes a name in, in Scripture, it's a transformation of identity. And although the man knows, right? Is that like, hmm, who are you again? Right? The man asks Jacob his name, but it's not to know, like, who are you? He knows who he is. He wants to hear Jacob say it. He says, what's your name? He says, I'm Jacob. And we know what Jacob means. Jacob, the heel grabber. Jacob, the cheat. Jacob, the supplanter who takes someone else's place. And what do you hear in that name but the identity of one who rules his own life and does so to his own glory, whether that means he has to lie or cheat or steal. I'm Jacob, the guy who rules my own life, and I've lied and cheated to steal to get where I'm at. Isn't that why Jacob's so afraid to see Esau? Because he's remembering who he is or who he was. God says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Do you know that's where the name Israel came from? After a guy. Israel, he says, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God changes Jacob's name. It's an act of power, but it's an act of authority over Jacob. He says, Jacob is who you were. Israel is who you are. I declare that you're no longer an outcast. You're no longer a cheat. You're no longer a liar. You are my chosen son. And scholars disagree about exactly what the name Israel means. Your Bible probably has a little note in it. Many argue that it means strives with God, which is what we titled the series, or fights with God, or wrestles with God, and prevails. All kinds of other suggestions have been made with their arguments, but I affirm personally with this context that probably the best description is God rules, or God wins. See, Jacob didn't wrestle with God in order to get a blessing. God came and wrestled with Jacob in order to get his full surrender. For him to deny himself and depend solely on the Lord. And interestingly, at the end, when, when Jacob gets his name changed, he's like, oh, okay, I'm Israel. Hey, what's your name? And the response, after we request the name of his opponent, essentially is God saying, who are you to ask my name? I rule over you. You don't rule over me. As Jacob re-enters the promised land, he would do so 
with a new name and a limp from his hip being popped out of place. And both the limp and the name would remind him of the fight where he fought with God and surrendered, if you will, but was blessed and was never the same again. So you, you hear a story like that and you go, okay. 2016, Snohomish, Washington. What the snarf does that have to do with me? How, how can I learn from that? So I want to perhaps just tease out a couple things as we conclude. What do we learn about him? What do we learn about God? Well, we learn that we worship a God who fights us, which is a strange statement to make and could be easily misunderstood. It's not to suggest that God is a father who desires to have perpetual conflict with his children, who provokes them constantly just for fun. It is to declare that anyone who becomes a child of God will have to experience one big heart-level fight with the Lord. And that fight is one of the wills. And it's determine who is actually going to rule and govern your life. Who is going to govern what you think, what you say, and what you do. It's ultimately a fight for the heart, but one that likely is going to at times involve the body and the emotions and the intellect, all of you. Difficult circumstances, painful trials, strained relationships, one that fills us with fear and stress are God's means to lead us into a personal, all-encompassing, painful wrestling match where He intends to break us so that He can bless us. What a God. But we learn a lot about me, about myself. I learned that pain is not the reason to take up a fight with God, but often the result of God taking up a fight with me, pushing me to change. We're always looking at the painful circumstance around us like, that must be the bad thing. No, the bad thing's right here. And God wants to change that so that you can endure whatever difficult circumstance may come. I, I learned that I must not be striving to escape the fight, to get out of it, but instead remaining in it, enduring in it, and, and striving to get a blessing from it. I learned that wrestling with God is an important activity as long as I understand that I'm actually not going to win in the truest sense of the word. You see, God is, is a father who wrestles his children. And if you're a father or if you had a father, which is all of you, we wrestle our kids, right? But we don't really wrestle our kids. Like if you walked in and you're like, hey, where's Sam? He's like, oh, he's wrestling his kid. I'm like, yeah, boom. Like, yeah, what? Hey, what's going on, right? Kids are all crying and bloody. I'm like, yeah, I just wrestling my kids, right? Like, What's wrong with you? Like, a lot of things are wrong with me. 
You don't go full bore. Like Even when your son is jumping from the top turnbuckle of your couch and you're down there exposed, you don't even know he's coming there, he slams you on the head, you don't pick him up and go, what's wrong with you? And throw him out the window. You don't go full strength. Like any good father, you go easy. You get hurt as a dad. But it's not really hurt. You endure it. Do we realize that that God the Father could crush us if he wanted to? Like, I can beat my five-year-old, in case you're wondering, okay? I can defeat him in a wrestling match pretty easily. The Father could crush us. And yet he doesn't. And he wrestles with us. And he, he enjoys my questions and he engages in the battle. He even endures my cheap shots, which my kids give to me. Ah, oh, what are you doing, right? And no one smacks me. The Lord endures all of that. But in the end, he's dad. And it's so difficult for us to probably, if you, if you had a really cruddy father, which many of us did, a disappointing father, it's hard for you to relate maybe to God as a father who perfectly loves and perfectly wrestles and does so in a loving way. But he does so so that we'll surrender ourselves to him, that we'll we'll fully trust him. The thing about my kids is that they continue to want to wrestle me. I mean, I pretty much walk in the door, I sit on the couch, and I get tackled. I get tackled. And there's a reason why they keep coming back to wrestle. It's because I don't hurt them. Right? I invite it. I'm like, ah, oh, this is fun, right? And they hurt me. Oh, yeah, they hurt me. But they're invited. It's, they, they feel invited. They feel embraced. They feel loved, even though we're wrestling. The Lord, what I learn is that he's fighting to rule my life. And if I'm going to endure the fights that come with men, I'm going to have to surrender to him. And what we learn about ourselves is that, very counterculturally, I actually win by losing. And that sometimes the way up is, comes through the way down. And the way to be high is to actually be low at times. And that a broken heart is sometimes the path to a healed heart. That's so bad. That's almost as bad as my alarm in my car going off in the middle of a sermon, but not as bad. It was such a meaningful point, too. Last couple things. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about me? And then what do we learn about us? Now, this is an important one. This is, this is maybe the most important. This teaches us how to do life with one another. Life as friends and family, as, as spouses, as brothers and sisters in Christ as pastors and members. See, Jacob's fight changed him permanently in a way that he could see, he could feel, and everyone else could see and know. Physically, it affected every single day of his life until he died. He limped. That was a nomadic culture, so he's walking a lot. We all have to relate to one another with a limp. 
especially those who are in leadership positions. You must lead with a limp. And by that I mean, I think we need to engage in relationships with a clear memory of who we were and certainly who we are. We must limp as husbands and limp as wives and limp as moms and dads who are okay with admitting our failures. And we must limp as brothers and sisters in Christ and not pretend we have it all together. And we must limp as pastors and to say, guess what? I've screwed up and I'm going to screw up. See, many wrongly believe that confessing our our mutual brokenness and even remembering our brokenness in some sense is a sign of weakness. And I would argue that leading with a limp is perhaps one of our greatest strengths. Leading with a limp ensures that we boast in God when we succeed. You're like, yeah, check it out. I'm limping. I can't do anything. But it also that we hope in God when we fail. It directs it all towards God. To quote one author, he said this way, Paul calls leaders not to merely be humble and self-effacing, but to be desperate and honest. It's not enough to be self-revealing, authentic, and transparent. Our calling goes far beyond that. We're called to be reluctant, limping, chief sinner leaders, and even more, to be stories. The word that Paul uses is that a leader is to be an example. That implies something more than a figure on a flannel board. It calls us to be a living portrayal of the very gospel we beseech others to believe. And that requires a leader, whether it be a mom or dad, a husband or wife, a friend or a pastor, to see themselves as being equally prone to deceive as they are to tell the truth, to manipulate as they are to bless, and to cower as they are to be bold. A leader is both a hero and a fool, a saint and a sinner. Laden with a limp. It's interesting that Israel commemorates this by remembering not eating that part of which his hip popped out in animals. Because they wanted to remember not just who they were, but who rules their life. Lastly, what, why is this good news to people? Why does anyone who doesn't believe take a story about a wrestling match and learn from it? I think we learn that the kind of message we have is actually good news for the world. The entrance to the kingdom of heaven doesn't come from proving you're strong or self-sufficient or that you can win every fight. In fact, it has nothing to do with winning at all. See, all other religions in the world will tell us that in order to be saved, you have to win something. They say if you want to be saved, you must perform certain truths or do enough good works to earn your way into God's favor and into the afterlife with Him. Essentially, you have to work hard to prove that you're strong enough or good enough to be acceptable. That's not what Christianity says at all. The Gospel shows us that it's not those who try to prove that they are strong or righteous or perfect by refusing to tap out who get into heaven. On the contrary, the Gospel reveals that it's only those who humble themselves 
who surrender the need to win and believe that Jesus Christ lost on the cross so that we could be forgiven and saved. But see, the only ones who will do that, who will believe that, are those who have the courage to admit that they're sinners, that they're wrong, to accept that they're broken, and to embrace the fact that you need a Savior and a Lord. And His name is Jesus. This table right here, what we do, and the most important thing we do on Sunday, is that table of confession. It's, in many ways, you tap it out. And coming and saying, I believe and acknowledge that I am a sinner worse than I'd ever admit or know. That I could list out all my sins that I've ever committed that I can think of and you would never think of all the ones that Jesus knew and went to the cross to save. And that you are more loved than you could possibly imagine that not only did he die the death that you deserve, he lived the life that you couldn't, that we couldn't. As much as we're trying to win and prove we're good, like you lose. And him saying, I forgive you, I know, and here's perfection. Just take it and believe. And then live in the joy and the rest of surrender to Jesus, of following him, of letting him fight the hard fights and not having to fight for yourself. He already fought the biggest fight there was to fight. Anything else is small in comparison. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing love you have for us. Lord, there are times when we want to fight you because we just don't like the way things are going. But as we learn from Jacob, more importantly, there are times when you come and fight us. You come and, and you wrestle us, Lord, and you squeeze us. Ultimately, you break us so that you can bless us so that we will see that the surrender to you is the path of rest, is the path of salvation, is the path of joy. Father, there will be many fights that we fight in this world. There will be many fights that we lose and some that we win. But Father, I pray that as you come and wrestle us, that we will surrender our lives and more of our lives every day to you so that we can enjoy the relationship as your kids who are invited into your presence to be with you, to be loved by you, to be changed by you, and ultimately be saved by you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even though we are unfaithful. Thank you for your love, even though we're unlovable and irritating at times. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.